0: Mesolp con langriant and pot casht, one allot a solo gun a heta imperient in goma awa.
1: Welcome to Con Langery. Podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With us in England is the lovely Bianca Richards. Hello. And over in the great state of Wisconsin, we have one William Anis. Hello. I think my my the uh, the trick is, and this has happened to me with other things as well, is to keep thinking the name Bianca Mangum
2: until I actually say your name and I get it <laughs> correct.
1: That happens to me all the time. I think the wrong thing, and then I say the right thing.
2: There's some deep message there, but I'm not sure what it is.
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, there's something I want to say, because the the recent episode of um, Speculative Grammarian Podcast, that was a language made difficult, Um, they confessed their prescriptivist tendencies, and... I want to confess that most of the time my rage is directed at prescriptivists. So I don't have that much thing. But one thing that does slightly annoy me and I think I'm fairly justified at this is the use of literally for meanings other than literally. You mean you know what I mean like uh-huh. using it as like an intensifier.
2: Yeah, it's a losing battle though. You're going to yes, lose it's you're gonna lose losing battle, but you know all
3: of these are losing battles for the yeah. for
1: the for the moment, while it's still in transition, it seems like it is it's one thing that does have the potential to cause confusion
3: really if I say the bear was literally fifty feet tall, you're going to be confused and think that it was actually fifty feet tall
1: well, most of the time context will figure will um will disambiguate that way
2: if you're not stupid but uh, (laughs) is there there a Gricean maxim about assuming the stupidity of your listeners (laughs) but there are
0: cases
1: I think think where it could actually like when you're making not a ridiculous claim like a claim that could be true maybe you
2: shouldn't use it when you're in a court of law
1: Definitely not. That's true.
2: Yeah, I just it's it, that's a very popular peeve right now, and it's hard for me to get excited about.
1: I don't know. Do you, you know, guys have any
3: secret?
1: Um, I know Bianca has things that annoy her.
3: Well, that's true. Like apostrophes are really starting to annoy me. We can get rid of those, and every time someone spells a word wrong, I'm secretly happy because it's proof that the English spelling system is. That maybe one day enough people will spell it wrong, that it'll become right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so George, of course, has to edit now. Um, honestly, right now I'm sick of articles about vocal fry. It's like suddenly friends of mine who have no interest in language at all are like, "Oh, I read this article about this thing. Is vocal fry?" I'm like, oh my god. I blame boing boing. What is vocal fry? Creaky voice. Oh.
3: Creaky voice. As I like to call it, creepy voice. When you start hearing it, it's so creepy sounding.
2: But it's everywhere. People use it it's all everywhere. the time. It's
3: everywhere. Like, one day, like, you know, every wait, once in a while, will just click.
2: Bianca,
1: okay, you just started saying creepy voice is, is creepy. And then right as you were talking, William started talking, and he had a little bit of creaky voice.
3: I use creepy voice all the time. And it freaks me out. Like, there was one day where it just clicks and you start hearing something like that. I also had a horrible day when I started hearing Aspiration. That was confusing as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I heard cre- Creepy voices. I will call it. I, I
1: hear Aspiration all the time. It comes from studying Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it.
3: Yeah, well, I haven't studied Mandarin and one day it was just like, I don't understand everyone. I don't know. Is that a T or a D? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. The, it's, it's like Medical students have problems where they go through a period where they think they have every new disease they've discovered or or learned so about in class.
0: Every, every one, while.
2: Um, one thing that
1: that drives me nuts is when people pronounce Spanish names with an an English uh, an an American English accent, and they do the the um, the uh, T flapping and D flapping.
2: Oh. Honestly, that irritates me less than someone who has a Spanish accent only for Spanish names. (laughs) And then I was talking to Marco Ramirez. I'm like, but you don't know. You're speaking English. You don't need to use the...
3: Yeah. I'm guilty of that with some words, but not all words.
1: I do that. I also pronounce um,
2: Mandarin names as Mandarin. Yeah, that's... But you're not speaking Mandarin, you should maybe not do that. Anyway, that's a little but, hang up.
1: <laughs> okay. When I when I run into a name like Liu when the the, the, the the sort of anglicization of that for most people is Lu, which could be two other different Chinese names.
2: Alright, but how do you pronounce the name of the capital of China? Beijing. Right. So I will just say oh, Beijing. Yeah. I do not yeah, give a if- tone.
3: If it's a popular thing like that where there's already an English equivalent, I would go with the English.
1: you say Beijing with no, the, the hyper-foreignism?
2: No, 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 no. That, that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I wouldn't do that, but I say Beijing.
2: All right, well, maybe we should talk about our topic and we can sit here and peeve all day. <laughs> Sorry. Let's, that should just let's, be yes.
3: Christmas special, everything we don't like.
2: <laughs> well, but I do um,
3: like... Actually, I think
1: we already have through Christmas, but anyway why why don't we actually move on and actually talk about something uh relevant um, so today, our topic is evidentials uh evidentials so evidentials are sort of a another kind of mood it's mainly determining how you know the information that you're stating um So, William, in your notes here, you said the most common thing is to say reported speech and then everything else, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I want to disagree a little bit with one thing you just said. While it's true, so evidentials, all language can mark the source of evidence. Um, In English, you can say, I heard that the senator has had an affair. That's easy, right? Yeah, right. So, when we talk about evidentials and evidentiality, we're talking about a situation where this process of saying how you know what you know is grammaticalized. It's not an independent phrase anymore, it's some piece of grammar. And sometimes evidentiality gets glommed together with tense, aspect, or mood, but sometimes it's independent and it's not quite a mood. Most um, epistemic moods are sort of judgments about mm-hmm. the quality of the information, and evidentials only tell you where it's coming from.
3: Yeah, I mean, on the mood scale, there would be, you know, the mood's imperative, and then far away, in my mind, would be evidential. So, don't feel like a mood either.
2: Yeah, they, they can, and and we don't have the time to get into this, but mood marking and evidential marking can co-occur or not co-occur. There's all sorts of very complicated things that can happen there. Mm-hmm. Um. So, right, the most common evidential system on the planet um is a simple two-way distinction and it distinguishes reported or indirect information and everything else.
1: Okay. So and, go ahead. So wait a minute. Reported versus everything else. So are you do you mean by reported it's specifically something you learn from another person? Right.
2: Okay. Well, it can be. So Yes, right. You can either be quoting someone else's words. This gets there's many, many different kinds of these systems. So another common two way split is direct and indirect. Mm-hmm. Direct is everything that you have personally experienced somehow, and indirect inco- includes things like stuff you learned from people or um, you're making an inference based on evidence. Okay. So, if I look out my window in the morning and I see a bunch of snow, I can say, oh, it snowed last night, or it must have snowed last night. It's obvious, but because I'm not actually seeing it, I didn't observe it snowing last night, I'm working from an inference. Anyway, so, reported is a common thing. I tend to call it a hearsay evidential, right? You're you're reporting what someone else told you, and sometimes literature calls it hearsay. There's direct perception of some sort. Um, the most common three-way distinction has direct hearsay and supposition. So, that says that you're inferring things, like I talked about the snow. You're you're using some evidence to make an inference about what happened. Okay. Um, so, languages like Piraha, do that, Quechua, has that three-way distinction.
3: So, I wonder how something like, he said that he saw her behind the street or something, how would that work? Because it seems like it would have two different ones, but can you do it inside of...
2: Right. So, evidentials in subordinate clauses is high black magic. <laughs> <laughs> Frequently, it's not permitted. It doesn't happen. Um, however, when you have a language like Tibetan where you have no choice... It is impossible to state a verb without Im- including some sort of evidential marking. Then they have conventions about how that works. Mm, i have not yeah. even touched that. I find the whole idea of evidentials and supporting clauses very confusing. <laughs> wow. Um, so evidentials don't have to exist in your entire verb system. So it might be omitted in some tenses. For example, an evidential for the future doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Nothing's Obviously,
1: happened. if you are talking about the future, then you everything you're saying is supposition.
2: Right. But um, you can do things like, you know, Bob will be at the store. I can't. There's no evidence for that, but the, the piece of information itself that I'm reporting, I can still mark with a hearsay evidential to say that I've heard from mm-hmm. someone that he's going to the store. Do so
1: evidentials there- ever end up doing like a double duty the way that sometimes uh, modals can be, um, can be sort of co-opted to show tense?
2: Typically evidentials are other things grammaticalized. Maybe this could happen. I have no doubt that there's some language where a hearsay evidential has collapsed in with some sort of mood marking that also indicates the future. I, w- mm-hmm. I would not be surprised that exists. I don't know one offhand. Um, but I can't think of one. Um, so we have plenty of languages that only distinguish evidentiality in the past. Turkish is a pretty common example. Um, in some languages, um, if there's a, f- a core argument, either the subject or direct object, is first person, that might also remove any need for evidential marking because it's kind of redundant. Yeah. Presumably, I always have direct. Um, Experience if, of what it is I've done.
1: <laughs> if I if I did it, then the only then then unless I was
2: sleepwalking, then I experienced it directly. Right. Which opens the possibility of using evidentials with the first person, kind of ironically. Yeah, like you yeah. know, Mark Twain. Apparently, I died. Right, I've heard.
3: Well, that could be like the Hangover. <laughs> so apparently, I might have done something.
2: Apparently, yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Right, so' they're, they're more common in the past. They may or may not interact with your tense and ac- aspect uh, and mood marking. Um, uh, one of the paper, one of the things that we have for this show is a link to a gigantic collection of papers that came out of a conference, which is a really wonderful resource for all sorts of interesting stuff about evidentials. Mm-hmm. And you can read those to find out some of all of the ins and outs because as always, we don't have time to cover.
1: Yeah, well we'll we'll link those in resources. We we got some really great
2: resources on this yeah, because luckily. William dug up some publicly it's, available papers. It's it's a it's a great thing cuz for me I first learned about evidentiality um long before there was widespread use of the internet and I can go to the internet and get papers and that was la Don cuz I could actually buy a book. And she's yeah. got her 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 large chunk of evidentials and that was my first exposure to that idea. But
1: of course, as we know, Ladan's evidentials are a bit atypical.
2: <laughs> a little bit atypical, but they've had, like I said, I mean, they've had a strong impact on other languages. Lojban, Ithquil also appear to have learned about and borrowed evidentials from um, mm-hmm. from from Ladan. Um It's um it's a little bit larger than average, but we can talk a little bit more about it. But it's it's not it's not as strange as I once thought.
1: Yeah. Um. It's interesting, the the things. Um, I think it's just a few particular ones in Laudan that make me annoying. Like, we mentioned when we reviewed Laudan that there was one evidential that was socially awkward because it required you to say that you got information from a, an untrusted source. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, that
2: I don't know of any natural language that makes that distinction. Although we can talk about the sort of pragmatics and sort of implicatures that come with with um, using different um, evidentials in different systems.
1: I could see it coming pragmatically, where you would you would use a hearsay. Um, you might use a hearsay evidential in a, in a. In with a particular epistemic mood, or with a particular structure, in order to say that, sort of in a roundabout way, but I wouldn't see it being a specific evidential because
2: I'm I, not quite sure where you were going with that. <laughs> I'm not sure where I was going with it either, but I was. All trying right, I had to an idea and it, and it got on its way. Um, yeah. So uh, one thing that you can use... So, like I said, subordinate clauses. I have no idea how you would use evidentials with those. That That's still black magic to me. Um, you don't normally use evidentials in questions. Um, however, there are some languages that if you use some indirect evidential in a question, then it's a conjectural question. Like, what on earth is that? Right? In a situation where you're asking a question because not only do you not know the answer, you don't expect anyone else to know the answer either. Ah, uh, Okay. Right, that's sort of. It's not a hypothetical question because you only ask that when everyone knows what's going on. It's the sort of conjectural question where you, you don't know and you don't think anyone else does. Either the inferential or the hearsay evidential used in questions like that is, a, is, is, is one way to indicate that sort of question. Um, all of this can interact in funny ways with this great new term called mirativity, which was, I think, invented within the last decade. And a mirative is yet another kind of marking to indicate that a piece of information is new and surprising. Um, the Wikipedia article is hysterical because it has this, the example sentence, Your daughter plays piano well. <laughs> 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 wow, she doesn't suck. Um
3: oh, I think I remember that in class as well.
2: Right. So that can interact with evidentiality in, in, in interesting ways, too. One question... I had when I was collecting notes i 'm like, how do you talk about dreams because Ladan very strangely has an evidential gist for dreams, but how does it happen in other languages with simpler systems, and it can go either way, It can either be direct evidential because you 're seeing it yourself or it can be hearsay, which is kind of an indirect you know pulling back saying yes, I know that what i 'm talking about is not real
3: hmm. I it wonder if, me in a dream
1: right i think I think um I don't know if this has any bearing on natural languages, but with conlangs, you could get all Warfian and and consider how your culture views dreams, whether they think of them as sure prophetic or as as something that could be true in another realm, or whether they just, or or whether they're more scientific about it, than just that.
3: Not even scientific, it's just determining whether it's something that's produced by the person or something that comes to the person.
1: Yeah, and again, that's just like, if you want to get all warfian with your conlang, I'm not saying that there would be, because I wouldn't know of
2: any actual correlation between culture and language in that area. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone does. Um, The Bible for the subject of evidentiality is written by Alexandra Eichenwald, um, and she talks about dreams a little bit. Um, but one of the one of the articles in the link we have um, has, is an entire article about different languages handling dreams. Unfortunately, um, it's in languages that don't have really nice overt evidentiality marking. So, mm. still, um, so how do? You, well, let's talk about the pragmatics a little bit before we get to the morphology. Not every group interprets a hearsay evidential the same. In some cultures, if you use a hearsay, that bolsters the truth. That's me saying, I'm not making crap up, someone else said it too. Mm-hmm. So, using a hearsay evidential, in fact, strengthens um, the speaker's assertion of the truth of the matter. In other places, a speaker will use that t- to distance themselves from the truth of a situation. Um, so, I, one of the examples I saw, and I don't even remember the paper, is in a society which has changed over time, and a young guy asks his grandmother, hey, did you guys used to wear the veil in public? And she said, no, we didn't, Puh, with the, the hearsay evidential. She obviously directly experienced that, but since the social, you know, the social mores have changed, she distances herself a little bit from, from what the past practice was by using a hearsay evidential. So, I know, Bianca, one of the things you said about, you know, Laudan, you don't want to have to express this information necessarily about how you come by your information. It might be a little awkward. But different cultures seem to to take – take can take that in different ways.
3: Yeah, I mean, the ones that Laudan have are more specific. That's true. Given that, you know, if it was just a direct versus indirect thing, you're not giving away too much. <laughs> Whereas in Ladan, you have to be far too specific for it to be worthwhile.
2: Yeah. Um, So, in Quechua, the inferential, sort of suppositional um, evidential is used when the speaker has really strong confidence in the statement. So, it's less hypothetical sounding. You're making a judgment from evidence, but you still have great confidence in it. So... Within your language, if you're describing your own language and you've decided to go with evidentials, make sure that you're clear about all the different ways they can be used and what the implication is to the listeners.
1: It's like a whole lot of other sort of grammaticalized things we've talked about, even though sort of in theory we have these standard categories that we can file things under. In practice, the pragmatics of them vary from language from language.
2: Yeah, they they really do. Well, that
3: happens. I mean... You're only going to have a certain number of features per language, but you have the same world of expression to cover. So each language is always going to take the tools it has to do the tasks and therefore spread it over the fields just in different ways.
1: Yeah. It's actually a little bit like mood in that way because mood, mood is even more crazy about um, different people sort of defining moods a little bit differently from language
2: to language. But, sure, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, I think, especially for conlangers of a particular generation, they see that Ladan list, or the same list that has been expanded on in Lojban or um, Ithkuil, and then start with those, and sort of assume what those things mean. I'm hoping people can think about those a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, we've been talking about a few kinds of evidentials. We've talked about how there's direct versus indirect systems. We've talked about direct experience versus hearsay versus supposition. Um, In terms of the direct experience, there are some additional subtleties available there. Um, The default perception for direct experience evidentials is sight.
3: That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, Um,
1: you know, sight is the primary sense for human beings, uh, it makes
3: sense. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. how much of our brain is dedicated to sight? It's ridiculous. It is
2: a <laughs> lot. So, sight's the first one, and then if you're going to distinguish between sight and others at all, it will be sight and all other kinds of sensory input. A small number of languages have an auditory and at least one language I've seen, one can make an argument that it has an olfactory evidential or is in the process of inventing one. (laughs) Which is is kind of gross, honestly, but there it is. I have evidence that there was a turkey walking through. Yeah, I I don't know.
1: Um, I think someone tried to invent a language for bears, and they included uh, hearing and olfactory evidentials. Sure, that makes sense.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, for think, any- I don't know if it was the first language we did, you weren't here, Will, but I, I want to say he had a fair, and I think he might have had olfactory evidence, or maybe that was just had... word class. No, he anyway, just, he, he just was...
1: had sort of colors of smell.
3: Oh, that's right, the colors, never mind. Which
1: we, which we never actually got into, because I couldn't find
2: the lexicon, but... Um, So, right. So, visual first, and then if you're going to make distinctions, you're going to start with visual and move on. Um, For the first, for the direct experience, that can sometimes be differentiated by sort of the most general direct evidence says either I've witnessed it or somehow experienced it myself. The subtleties that come in is you can either say that you did something yourself or that you were on the receiving end of some unpleasant action, or maybe it was a pleasant, but anyway, you were a passive, something happened to you kind of action. Um, or you can talk about internal states, like I'm sad, I have a tummy ache, you know, that sort of very direct experience might be um, separated out. Um, inferential. Um, a small number of languages have an evidential that says that something is commonplace knowledge, it's assumed. Mm-hmm. Um... And some languages make a difference between a hearsay evidential and a quotative evidential, and I have to be honest, I don't understand what the difference with those was.
3: Oh, question! Can we go back? Sure. Duh is kind of like a general knowledge marker in English, because you're obviously only going to say Abraham Lincoln was president. The. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, well. has some of that e- same same effect.
3: Same kind of thing.
2: Yeah. With the uh, sort implication of, that
3: you're stupid.
1: Yeah, there there is there is that particular pejorative implication on. It. So, it's yep. not not um, you use universally.
2: And I think that's it. I mean, some languages and and the Wikipedia article has a list of all these different systems, which is the taxonomy that Ekelholt came up with, but I don't have access to her book, which is expensive these days. So, I don't know what all they mean. Some of them have multiple inferential or multiple reportative um, hearsay uh, mm-hmm. evidence. And I don't know what the distinction those meanings are. They're just given numbers. Inferential one and inferential two. Do not tell me what they mean.
3: Maybe it's like distance, like I got it from him rather than he said that she oh, said that. Yeah, I, I, think,
2: I think some <laughs> languages make that distinction between Bob told me something that he experienced versus Bob told me something that he heard from someone else.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's, that's getting a little uh, complicated. Isn't that's it? getting hard to keep track of, yeah. Yeah, the way so, you get to... Gossip and (laughs) the gossip
2: and (laughs) it's
3: been going around that you might have been meeting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That the (laughs) Senator might have been hanging out with somebody (laughs) who's married. Yeah. Um so I'm looking here at a list of the evidentials of Maka, which is a Wakashan language from the Pacific Northwest, and it has six. It has a hearsay evidential, yay. It has non indicative hearsay which you use in subordinate clauses, questions, and in contrafactuals. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Here's where you're, you're having two, do, two particles doing the same thing, but one for different moods. You have an auditory um, evidential. You have this, I love this one so much, uncertain visual evidence as trying to make out something at a distance. <laughs> this is useful in a place that has a lot of fog. Inference from physical evidence... This is the snow example. And then inferred probability.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So, you know, maybe he's probably singing based on some sort of evidence. And this is the language (laughs) that appears to be in the process of turning one of its suffixes into um, an an olfactory evidential.
3: He's probably singing based on the noise coming out of his face.
2: (laughs) Based based on the, the police car in front of his house. He was music too loud. Okay, <clears throat> so do you want to move on to the morphology?
1: Yeah, why do we? I think we've. If people want to know more about this, obviously they can look at the, the papers that you.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's in, just man. so many, so many little things to, to think about and um, stuff. <laughs> so your most languages, I think it's safe to say, have evidentiality as an additional thing. A small number do have it as an intrinsic part of the tense aspect mood system. Uh, Tibetan is my favorite example where it's synthetic, right? You can't pull evidential marking out of your verb in any way because to to use the verb correctly at all, you have to use evidence marking. Mm -hmm. But you might have some sort of agglutinative process instead.
1: Yeah. And,
2: uh... So that's one way to do it.
1: That was... In the, um, in fact, um, sort of the the walls chapter that was sort of the the second most common, but much far beyond behind um, where you have just a a, a, an affix or clitic on the verb. Right. Some it's sort of rarely you can have. No, it wasn't even second because walls puts their stupid things out of order. Um, (laughs) But it was. It's it's not terribly common,
2: right? It does happen, but it seems a little unusual. And I think um, part of this is um a number of these evidentials are so obviously related to other words, right? Mm-hmm. The hearsay evidential is very frequently and obviously related to a phrase or a verb meaning to speak. Oh, okay. Right, so the grammaticalization of these seems to lend itself to little particles or little adverbs and things, less than becoming a fully integrated part of the verb <laughs> system.
1: What What I find interesting is so walls here lists verbal affixes or clitic, part of the tense system, separate particle, and very, very rarely modal morpheme. Also, it the, if to the at least by their count mixed systems, so combinations of one or right. two of these or, or two or three of these are very rare. Oh interesting. So,
2: okay. So I was gonna give the the list. So we've talked about the the, the part of the verb. Your mm-hmm. other choice are either what I call Wakernagel particles or free range particles. <laughs> <coughs> so the free range particles are the this little either eclitic or a separate word that can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um for example quechua um with quechua has one interesting little rule is the clitic can happen on any word in the sentence so long as it doesn't come after the verb so it doesn't so long as that word is not following the verb so every word up to the verb can take the the evidential marking but after that you can't Yeah, huh, that's interesting um and a Wackernagel particle uh, – so, Wackernagel was a, a grand old classicist who noticed that a bunch of languages have this pattern where certain kinds of clitics always happen after the first word in the sentence. Mm. So, a large number of ancient Greek conjunctions happen second in your sentence. Hmm. And, and this makes sense, right? The first word in a clause is really important. And you have all of these clitics who can't take their own stress accent, so they need help from someone. So, they sort of pile up after the first stress-bearing word in your clause. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's a Vachernagel particle. Um, and that can either be typically written as a clitic, but might be written separately. Um, so, those are your choices. Part of the verb system, inextricably bound to it, a Vachernagel particle or a free-range particle.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah. It just sort of, you can, what, so you could put it either there or either after the first word or have it be wherever?
2: Yeah. Or they're not... Different languages are going to have different rules. They might go at the end of the sentence, they might cluster someplace in particular. All Uh, right, I I see. I'm sure there are um, pragmatic implications to how Quechua decides to attach its... Evidentials, I just don't know what those are. Okay. I'm sure every language is going to have their own thing. Um, typically, if, you, if one, of your, you, one of your options can be to not mark evidentiality overtly at all, and the default assumption of that is usually to say that this is a direct evidential.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Right? So if you have evidentials and you say that you must use them always in every sentence... The situation where there's no overt morpheme is usually to be interpreted as direct evidence.
1: Okay, um, I'm sure that there's there's magmatic situations because you don't want to be like telling a story and have to put the um, hearsay evidential
2: everywhere, right? In some in some languages, you would absolutely put a hearsay evidential after every clause somehow. In, in every clause. In other languages, the evidential is required, but it operates at a larger level. Okay. Like, we'll call them paragraphs, right? They're, they're spoken paragraphs. Like a particular little set incident in a tale, you would use the hearsay evidential. And when you move on to the next incident in the story, you'll use the hearsay evidential again and again and again. But in a language that says you must use evidentials always in indicative sentences, no, you, you'll you'll hear it in every single clause. Wow. Yeah. At least unless it's a, a story that happened to you.
3: Well, uh, that means no. you have to put direct.
2: Yes, unless the story happened to you, then you would use the direct. Although, again, if it was a difficult story, you might use indirect because you don't... Yeah, it was a story about, I don't know, getting hit by a car. That's, again, some of that pragmatic... Yeah, yeah, you might, you might distance yourself a little bit from it by using hearsay.
1: That's interesting. I just um, want
3: to say how awesome you are. Like I was going through the woods and I saw a bear and then I killed it because <laughs> I'm awesome.
2: Right, but if that seems you know if your culture objects to bragging, then you might you might. Do <laughs> oh, I had yes. a cousin who killed a bear when she was twelve with a gun. Yes, good lord.
3: No, with her raw be- raw hands, well, bare well, hands.
2: I don't know. You know, a, a farm kid on a tractor can wreak some serious mischief by accident. That's so I-
1: true. Well, she was out deer hunting,
2: I think. And and a bear decided came to, up on.: her. Oh and, and oh. she's: OK. Yeah. All right, so she can story. I'm not sure which evidential she would want to use for that story, but
1: uh, anyway, uh, anyway let's, let's get back to <laughs> evidentials then.
2: Um, and again, so this is another one of those distinctions. In some languages, you must use evidentials all th- <coughs> excuse me, all the time, and in other languages, they operate at a much larger level, right? You use them periodically to reassert um, the evidential you want to mark. Does that
1: correlate is. with the the morphology? I think uh, obviously, if it is incorporated into the tense system, then then you, then you can't pull it out. Yeah, there's no option. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've we've talked plenty about <laughs> evidentials and sort of covered every different angle that people want. I I, I encourage people to go to the papers that. Um, William found you'll find links in our show notes and uh you know if you want to work on this then then um read those and get a little bit more information and you know like everything you know think think carefully about what you want to do with these and if you if you want them in a particular
2: language but you know um i think uh, i think <sighs> Achenwald says that about a quarter of all human languages have evidential systems of some sort. Does Walls give numbers on how many they think? Um, I don't don't remember. Walls,
1: in their sample, it was let's see uh, it looks like Walls has even more. It says it marks, it says um, Walls, their sample has to be skewed if that, that guy's right, because it has 181 out of Four eighteen having no
2: grammatical evidentials. So,
3: so it's a little over half.
2: A little over half. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know who to believe. Anyway, it's more common probably than most of us think. Yeah. Okay. Even if it's even if it, even if it's only a quarter. So somewhere between not, a quarter and a half.
1: Yeah, it's. a I mean, that's uh, not
3: crazy uncommon. Yeah. That's...
1: So yeah, you can you can throw it in. It's not. It's not like clicks or something. <laughs> yes, it's not as exotic <laughs> as clicks. <laughs> it's. it's but, you know, it's, it's a, it seems like a fun way to spice up your, your um, language and also add something that you can use pragmatically. Yes.
3: Anyway. Can I note, though, that adding just evidentials to spice up your language is boring. Adding evidentials and considering the secondary implications and the pragmatics is interesting.
2: Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
3: Alright. End of story.
2: <laughs> <laughs> here, All right. here endeth the lesson from the Church of Bianca.
1: <laughs> and now let's move on to our featured conlang, which um Will suggested to us.
2: It is Taloson. So Actually. Actually David mentioned this to us after recording the show that he appeared on. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. And I was embarrassed to have forgotten Tolosan.
1: It was Let's see. Created by, what's the name of the guy? Um.
2: It's always confusing to me because, so, all right. So there are different reasons people con-world. Sometimes they're doing it for books. Sometimes they're doing it for role-playing games. And Talasin is an example of what I like to think of as con-worlding for performance art. It is a micronation. Mm-hmm. So when he was a teenager in the late seventies, early eighties, he declared his bedroom an independent sovereign nation. Okay, and um, he started issuing a newspaper, hand-produced in this language he was inventing. And once the internet appeared, people started hearing about this and joining it. So he was on the net early.
1: This guy, by the name, his by the, by the way, his name is Robert Ben Madison.
2: Right. It's always confusing to me that. Milwaukee contained his sovereign nation, but his last name is Madison. Right, that's only confusing probably for somebody from Wisconsin. Um, so, over the course of his life, various linguistic interests of his has influenced the development of this enormous constructed language. It has a huge, huge vocabulary. 120,000 words. What? Hundred and twenty thousand words.
3: Well, what do you even use those for?
2: Well, he tends to—I get the impression—create one-off mondo words for concepts like love at first sight.
3: Oh, yeah. useless. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: um, um, okay.
2: <laughs> well, what, what, what's weird about Toloson is it got some press. Like Wired magazine talked about it. This whole micronation wackiness. Subsequently and I learned this while doing research for the show, there have been two schisms. (laughs) The Talosan king abdicated in favor of his wife's grandson, and then there was a schism after that, and so there are currently, on the Wikipedia entry, three separate entities answering to this micronation named (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talosan. In addition to that one of the schisms caused the language communities to split a little bit, although now there is an organization that tries to bring the two different groups together. Um, To me, the most astonishing thing about Talasan, and we can talk about the details a bit in a second here, is from time to time, their language committee issues proclamations about spelling reforms. Mm -hmm. The documents are in the Talasan language and then translated into English or whatever other languages people need to know.
1: Well, I don't know, but they need more spelling reforms because the <laughs> this, this, this spelling system makes no goddamn sense.
2: <laughs>
3: it the, made the, George <laughs> swear. I think that's probably his first swear out of the whole thing. Well, except for the profanity episode, which doesn't really count. Is damn a swear?
1: Well, no. I I'm not going to edit Goddamn because... Um, I wouldn't.
3: My do mother would say con- something for you to edit.
1: Well, no, you already have. <laughs> my my mom would s- would say differently, but I don't take it as that strong in anyway, any way. But um, no, I can't figure out what his phonology is because he doesn't mention the phonology directly. And right. when you look at how the spelling system works, it's just like bizarre. Multiple letters have. There, there are several letters that have multiple different realizations. Yeah, and
3: I think a good example is this: is on the front page of the website. Um, there's this word G L H E Thorn. I suppose it is.
1: Yes. Yeah, I
3: think. And the trigraph, I guess it would be of G L H is actually the palatal lateral. Mm-hmm. For whatever so, reason.
2: So right, like it's, I, like it's less yeah, yes. yes. And, yeah. and like I said last time, it's like the Italian orthography met up with the Portuguese orthography and decided to, you know, get married.
3: I'd say pick one, not the other, because it looks <laughs> like instead of getting married, they decided to stitch each other together and have, like, one of those awkward couple sweaters where it's, like, <laughs> two arms and their heads are coming out. More like that.
2: Right. So this the, the current orthography is much improved because there was... If you look at the Talosan language article on the wiki, you can see pre- and post-2007 reforms, Uh and I assure you the spelling was much worse um, before that reform. And and I think part of this is a development of, right, this was a teenager in his room who thinks creating a sovereign nation and doing a newspaper in an article in, in a language that no one but him can read. Right? We're dealing with a great deal of enthusiasm and time and a little more than a little eccentricity. Um, that is not conducive to rational writing systems.
3: That is true.
2: In my opinion.
3: It's not
1: conducive to rationality in general, but anyway. But that's
3: one of the more endearing things. It's just like the whole conceit of the thing is so preposterous, it's funny.
2: No, it's great. <laughs> um, exactly. So, for example, if you want to, you can go to Amazon and buy A Complete Guide to the Tolosan Language. Poster form recently updated.
1: Yeah. Um, another another thing, uh, looking at his grammar as presented online, everything's written like he's like making a critique of English and fixing problems with it. Because every single thing, he's like, you know... English does it this way, and that's crap.
2: So I'm going to do it the other, another way. <laughs> the, there is about Tolstyn this weird kind of not quite to the same level of obnoxious boosterism you get in an oxlang, but almost. <laughs> Even the Wikipedia article has lines that I see that are on their website. Like it, this is the most famous conlang ever. No. <laughs>
3: what?
2: One of the best-known artistic languages in the world. and, and <laughs> He's you two, clearly
3: been editing his own wiki article.
2: Right. You two <laughs> had never heard of the language. Both David and I knew about it because it's been around since forever. hmm And yeah. it looks like there is an entire community of people attracted to this <laughs> performance art piece of the Micronation who learn the language, but they're, complete, they're like Klingon language people. They have nothing to do with the rest of the conlanging world. <laughs> And, yeah. and being and, and being in an article in Wired in two thousand is not that does not make you famous. No,
3: no. Try the New York Times.
2: I think they may actually made the Times, but even you know doing that once is not enough to, to genuinely be famous. I, I think. Anyway, so the language, despite initial high levels of weirdness, has over time settled into being kind of a bogo language. I mean, uh, what I mean this is a reimagined romance language.
1: Yes, it, yeah. it, it very clearly. I when I whenever I look at vocabulary, it's very obvious that there's romance influence in here because I can I can literally understand half the words just because I know the Spanish
2: word. Right, right. And if you can cope with the fact that F A M I G L H A is pronounced familia, <laughs> familia, familia, right, yeah, which is
1: not how it's, what's
2: not precisely like Spanish, but well, yeah. it's more like Italian. Whatever, it's it's so obviously um.
1: yeah, it's, it's 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 obviously the Romance, and it, it, he has pupitra for desk, Um But yeah, anyway, I'm not gonna like go through. His numbers are very obviously.
2: Yeah. Sort well, there's romance. there's one or two weirdness. See, the, the, the funky thing is, every once in a while, you're looking long. It's like romance, 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 and then some weirdness appears out of nowhere to to surprise you.
1: Oh, it does have a like nineteen. I don't know, but it looks like it's derived from like one less than twenty, in, sure, other than being a, a a regular ten and nine.
2: That's perfectly expected.
1: Yeah, that's not. Unusual, but it's it's that's that's one thing that takes it a little bit away from romance. And then there's other
2: things. Uh, the verb system is comparatively simple. He's got a few irregular verbs. How many? Nineteen? Fifteen? Not too many. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am upset by some of the linguistic terminology. So, for example, it has a perfect. But for some reason, all their documentation, they call it a perfective.
0: Okay.
3: That is pretty common error.
2: Yeah. Oh, except in the article, then they actually call it a perfect. So someone was getting confused there. Um,
3: (laughs) I got annoyed when I was reading about the plurals, and it was like, English has multiple ways to do plurals. Sometimes you add ES, sometimes you add just S. And I was like, it's the same thing.
1: No, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, that,
3: and then I was like, "But we have declensions, just like England." I'm like, "No, anyway."
1: No, he, he's he's confusing the the English one regular uh, uh, plural that's phonologically conditioned with multiple different yeah. uh, plural markers, which is it's not. It's it's one
2: Wait, I, to someone learning a language. They might as well be different. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's still new stuff to, to be learned. Yeah, um, but...
3: Anyway. It's not, it's not the same. I mean, uh, like, learning German plurals like, is not know. like learning ES versus S. Well,
2: that's true, but it's, it's still not as simple as it's just one thing.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Even, underlyingly, you can say it's just one thing, but yeah. that's because
2: you've learned it and internalized it. So. Yeah, you shouldn't have to learn linguistics to... Honestly, this is just a pretty simple Romlang, you know, a romance, a a created romance language. Um, It has an enormous amount of effort and time over the years. Um, There are huge texts Mm -hmm. available, um, including, it looks like, oh, look, they have songs with actual people singing them. Oh, let's see, where... <laughs> so if you go under examples, and if you look for in Nazareth.
1: In Nazareth. Oh, well, let's let's uh, play this. and. Uh, well, can... actually,
2: if you don't want to do a song, someone translated The Telltale Heart. Oh, really? By Andrew Ellen Poe. Uh, La Corazion Profanind. Um, and the translator apparently recorded him.
1: Okay, so. well...
2: I'll... I'll
1: I'll play just the first little bit. You guys can play a little bit on, on your side too, but um see. La Corazón Profanant par Edgar Allan Poe. Yet par Justi Canun
3: Vratz. Trey, trey, nervos. Trei trei sorry, I'll mean Es evsint. Mas perfekt zirashets folke mats okay that's all
1: I'm gonna put up but uh, you can listen to the rest of it yourself if you are really interested but yeah that's a huge text to translate and then record looking at the this is this is the entire text of the Telltale heart it looks like are you guys still there
2: yeah yeah, yeah. no its it's 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 a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Um, for me, the, I, I don't find. I mean, the language is fine. It's interesting enough. It's a little too regular to really excite me. Um, the monstrosity, of the vocabulary in itself is, I think, pretty intrinsically interesting. Does um, he
3: have and, a word list anywhere? Because all I can find is a dictionary where you have to search for something.
1: Yeah, yeah I think that I, I, I wanted controls. to mention that though, but that he has a searchable and uh, dictionary. So. But not you a browsable
3: dictionary, well,
2: you know, yeah, I agree with with Bianca. I would sort of like, like to have
3: i'd
1: like I'd like to have that too, but you know you can have a little fun. I looked up computer and I come up with like nine different words that are tangentially related to
2: computers, but oh, that's good, so oh, that is not a great dictionary,
1: yeah, it's kind of it's kind of just um one word for one word does yep yeah have a whole lot of stuff and well he'll he'll give you gender at least but um yeah he has i uh, I wonder really how much how much of his vocabulary really is um, a lot of it looks kind of relaxy.
2: it does look kind of reley um, and that might be a uh, a f- misfeature of the dictionary and less of the language, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's a little it's a little, it's not very exciting. He does have,
1: this is interesting, he has sort of compound terms for each of the I guess it's not too different from English, because it looks like he has, it's like, but he has compounds for each of the fingers. Yeah.
2: Um... And he has a special root for Big Toe. I think that's not unusual. I think that happens in other languages.
3: Yeah. I remember hearing a word for it in English. Now I don't remember what it is.
2: Really? We used to have a word for Big Toe that we lost?
3: No, I think we <laughs> borrowed it or made it up.
2: Uh. Oh, wow. That's interesting. It was something <laughs>
1: What?
3: It was something that ended with Lex. Anyway. <laughs>
2: Sounds like a medical um- term. If you, I, I think some people might find looking so under the uh, tutorials part of the the pull down menu, and if you look at the prefixes and the suffixes, the prefixes are very European and boring, um, and the suffixes have a good deal of that character as well. But there are some other stuff that might be interesting for people who like to think about um, derivational processes.
1: Yeah, there's some some mildly interesting stuff in here Um, anyway I think we've talked enough about it I, um, I know there's some people out there who listen to this who prefer to hear more sort of grammar discussion and we talked a little bit about a lot more about just sort of ancillary stuff about the Micronation but you know you can get all the in- grammatical information if you if you want to read through his grammar and and look at it. I don't think it's terribly interesting, <laughs>
2: but we're going to get official letters from the government. One of the maybe several of the governments of Talasa <laughs> protesting our our, well, our feelings that's about fine. Their language. Send
1: it to conlanger at gmail dot com.
3: <laughs> Make sure to translate it into English, guys. It, yeah, might be, it
1: might be on the air, but yes, it has to be in English because I'm not going to try to pronounce Toloson from the from the ridiculous orthography. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so why don't we end uh, out with a short little feedback here? I found the I've been holding uh, this back for a while because I thought we might do an episode on it. But uh, we have since not decided to do it, and so I thought we might as well. Um, this is an email from Art Richard Johansson. Says, hi folks, great show. I've listened to every episode since number one, except 13, which is so incredibly long. I haven't gotten around to 16 yet. I'm pretty sure he's gotten further since that time. <laughs> He sent this like a month ago. Um, (laughs) Shame on you, George. What I'm writing to bring to your attention a topic that which is underappreciated in our circles: prosody and intonation. I like David David Peterson's Dothraki a lot, not because its grammar and lexicon is cleverly done, although it is, but because he when he pronounces example sentences in the language, it sounds believable. It seems that most language creators just borrow all the intonation patterns from their native language, but Dothraki doesn't sound like English or any language I know. But I can tell that it isn't random either. There is some kind of system to it. If I only knew what that system was, tone and stress, which are categories that operate at the word level, are fairly well described. But when it comes to making a system that applies to whole sentences or utterances, I have no clue. What is a conliner supposed to do to figure out how questions should differ from statements or how to emphasize morphs, words, and phrases in different ways or to mark scar- sarcasm? When it comes to intonation, the, what may differ between languages and what is truly universal? So I have thought of doing a Prosody episode for a while, but um, Will and Bianca have, conv- have um, been a little bit against it, and to, no, me, I'm not against to be against
2: it, I'm afraid of it.
3: <laughs> well, I'm. It's just I can talk about it, but you're going to have to put up with my kind of ridiculous ways of thinking about things. Like it sounds like a horse galloping through the forest, or no, it's more like a morning stroll on the sidewalk, because. I don't know any real terminology to describe it.
1: Yeah, and that's something that I suffer from too. I don't know a whole lot about presby and, and I'm pretty I,
3: sure everyone suffers from it. Because I don't
1: know any. Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows. There are terms that float around, like um, stress timed versus syllable timed, but those are that's questionable uh, as to whether that's a real distinction or not. Things like that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, From time to time, I run across a grammar that actually focuses on this, and they give these funny little kind of lines that are somehow supposed to tell me what the pitch is. (coughs)
0: Uh,
2: Explaining prosody more than anything else that happens in language, I think, requires a recording.
3: Okay. And most of us do
2: not have access to that information.
3: Are these, like, the lines above, like, the sentence where it goes up and down and you're supposed yeah, to magic?
2: Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. They had us do that in, like, English class in high school, and I was like, this is clearly useless. Because...
1: Here's, here's a, a weird thing about this, is I even hear some form of prosody in, like, Mandarin, where you don't really expect it to have sort of... Because because it has contour tones, you don't really expect it to have sentence level intonation changes, but
2: it does.
3: Sure. Well yeah. You're yeah. always gonna have some crazy overlying thing.
2: Well it's not like the this pitch accent the not the pitch accent. It's not like Chinese tone is fixed and everyone sets on A four forty and goes from there, right? It's against some baseline and that baseline can move all over the place.
1: Yeah. I feel true. like
3: sometimes Sorry,
1: Particularly but, because Mandarin is not, um, it, the contour tunes in Mandarin are more the contour and they don't have much relative pitch, while, whereas Cantonese does. But anyway, as you were saying, Bianca, sorry.
3: Sometimes I feel like English, rather than having tones, I feel like it has a bass pitch. And like when I talk, I want to stay at one pitch the whole way through, except for every once in a while when I say something that I want to focus <laughs> Or emphasize. Oh.
1: <laughs> and even English, it's not really uh, entirely clear because everybody talks about sentence final raising uh,
3: for the Well, questions even that And that's what's in English because I think Australia has sentence final raising on indicatives. Yes.
1: Well, actually, and then there's UpTalk
2: too, where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, don't, we do not need to go into all the varieties of what English can do. Um, I'm sure there are people who study this, but it's just, it's much harder to find information on. I've had, it's not frequently part of the documentation of languages when I get grammars. Sometimes it is, but rarely.
1: Why don't we, why, why don't we just say, um, for now, we're not going to plan on it. But if one of us stumbles across some really good information on... How on a pros prosody or a really good study, then maybe we'll we'll consider doing it in the future
2: sometime. But if people now, have resources that they would like to recommend to us on this topic, please do.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send us papers. Send us send us stuff, and we'll see if uh, if we can find sufficient information to do it. It's
2: just to communicate something useful in a half hour.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That way, you know, we'll say we'll do it if we can, but we can't. We can't really promise anything with it until I know
2: something about it. I'd, I'd rather not talk about it.
3: But I do think it's important when you're making a con language to think of the prosody, even if you're not able to describe it. Like, mm. even if you can just hum like a sentence to yourself, because there is a pattern when you say things. Like, I can just hum a sentence, and you kind of get the movement. Even if you can do that in your language and it's not just like English or whatever other language you know. Mm -hmm. That's a good base point. It'll help you figure out other things like allophones, etc., etc.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's all we have to say for today, for this week. So I'm going to say, Bianca, do you have any final words of wisdom?
3: I should have saved that last sentence for my wisdom. No, I was doing it in the past... Yeah, go back into the past and listen to me again. <laughs> <laughs> but don't do it the second time, because then you'll just have to keep listening to me forever.
1: I could edit it, but I probably won't. Um, don't. <laughs> William.
2: Sure, I have another proverb. Let's see if I can remember how to pronounce it. Hecat <laughs> lezut which is a proverb to tell you to get to work, it really means the grave is waiting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a little a little urgency there. That's intense. It cuts what was that? Yeah. Um my language, uh. Ah. Its oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> sounds sounds very Mesoamerican. Uh in that one it does because the T is followed by the sh but. That's not exactly what I was aiming for.
1: Okay, and I'm going to say happy Con Langery. Thank you for listening to Con Langery. You can find our archives and show notes at ConLangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to ConLangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five star review while you're at it. You can also like us at Facebook.com slash ConLangery, follow us on Twitter at ConLangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for ConLangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Device.
2: think we've lost george he's just going to be so busy digesting
1: yes but i mean like just south of the yangtze it does get fairly cold in winter it's mm. not it fairly it gets fairly chilly but then people leave windows open the chinese are tough they're odd
3: because then you get hot in bed i love the picture on this evidence from evidentials where it's just like a fish
1: the, the reported evidential sounds a lot like the word allegedly.
2: You're tired, because you just ate a chicken.
3: I have time to go get some chocolate?
1: Okay, go get chocolate. <laughs> I failed to properly communicate to the rest of my family that I was going to be recording today, mm-hmm. and my dad decided to go shopping for Christmas dinner, and I ended up going along. That's why I had to grab chicken and go. Hello, is this the, the one that Annoys me.
0: <gasps> <laughs>
1: <clears throat> oh my god. Noise words. Mm-hmm. It was fine on my end. Okay. Yeah. My end is the end that matters. My end is the end that matters because my end is the end that the listeners hear.
3: <clears throat> Context is never important. Okay, no. so I was wrapping presents today and I foolishly bought this Lego set for my nephew, but it came in an octagonal prism. I don't know if he's ever wrapped one of those, but it wasn't yeah. fun.
1: Yeah, it in, in a bag. bag.
3: No, kids love tearing things to pieces. He won't care.
1: My dad wrapped up a, uh, a door of the Explorer for the oldest of my nieces, before he took it out of the box and I'm like you know you really should take it out of the box
2: first I think any child who's capable of sitting through Dora the Explorer can can unwrap a present Uh,
1: there was one like hour long movie of Handy Manny where there were a couple of people that were mildly surprised that there were talking tools but no one like freaks out about it
2: uh, my favorite show currently for children is Yo Gabba Gabba, which is training the youth of America to become stoned-out ravers.
1: I like Finnish
2: and Ferb.
3: Phineas and Ferb is good. English has a word for everything.
1: In Tetrapause, the hallux, big toe, great toe, is the innermost, most medial toe on the foot.
2: Medial. Whatever. One does not copulate with one's lover. One copulates.
3: <laughs> Idea phones.
2: Idea phones.
3: Yeah. Oh my
1: God. <laughs> um. What do we want to do? I don't know what do you want to do.
3: Let's do prosody. <laughs> we should no. spend that whole episode complaining about it, and then the next week be like, "This week we're doing." Procity and just say everything wrong. I have a hard time with vellers and you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> And the protasis and the potasses.
1: I used to I used to say Velar until I, I took a linguistics class and I still sometimes say it velar because like It does look the, like Velar. The linguistics teacher said Velar but he was from Belgium, so I didn't always trust his pronunciations.
2: I had a Chinese teacher who always called shoes shows.
1: Um, and mm-hmm. also, you know, there there were he had a slight accent and he called bats insects.
2: Yeah, it's English, French, Japanese, and Turkish are all anyone wants to talk about. It's just having different evidentials, different kinds of evidential, evidential marking is a prime candidate for making them completely different across dialects. Right? Mm-hmm. Too many people just do dialects. But, you know, a few sound rules, and that's it. Oh, um, okay. When really, it's more interesting to have completely different words, especially the the reportative, the, the hearsay evidential. Apparently, every Estonian dialect has their own version.
3: Gender. Oh, that reminds me. Apparently, my husband's never seen The Wizard of Oz, so when I said lions and tigers and bears, oh my, he was like, what the hell are you talking about? Really? Yeah, I was like, you're kidding me, right?
1: I don't even connect that to Wizard of Oz.
3: I was like, don't look at me like I'm a crazy person because you said, uh, lions and tigers, and I said, oh, bears, oh, my, because you're the weird one here. <laughs>